Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Justin Palmer Show. Today's guest, Matt Woodson. He's the founder of Okanagan Trail Construction, and he's one of the most incredible people I know. He has had a very free-spirited life, to say the least. His stories are incredible. I think if you're looking for someone who you can identify with in terms of their philosophy towards life and how to balance social media, what's going on right now. Uncle Matt has a great perspective. Uh, it also just slipped out. He, he is my uncle. He's, uh, he, he was there for me in a lot of ways. He's always, he and I have always had an incredible relationship. And every time I talk to him, his stories are, they're wild. They are just wild from almost getting stabbed in France to being in the desert with no water in India, um, to being in Afghanistan while the embassy had like during the time in when the embassy had, had come under attack. So he's, he's a true free spirit. I hope you enjoy the show and uh, shout out to Chris Williams for helping produce it because th this one this one's going to the cosmos. Enjoy. It's the Justin Palmer Show. Here we, here we go. Woo. Okay. Live from the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right? What's, what's going on? So, well, you know, up. Uh, up here in the great northwest right now little little bit smoky a little bit fiery yeah a little bit of all that yeah i've seen the flames firsthand that's is stuff burning in central washington where where you guys are yeah so like omac which is like 40 miles away had like a 300,000 acre fire that started like the day before i got here Whoa, that's, that's wild. Yeah. So a lot of smoke. And were you, were you but, traveling uh, up and down the coast as some of these fires in California were going on? Well, I got here just before that, that happened after I got up here. So the first fires I was involved with was when I drove up here to the Okanagan. Okay. Man, it's crazy, crazy times. COVID, I know. wildfires, hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, I guess that's and the universe sometimes. Yeah, abundance of natural disasters. You know, I've always been kind of a guy who kind of likes that, though. <laughs> Not for the people. Damn it. Well, I've, been, I've been the one who's had the wildfire come and take all my business away. So I'm, uh, I know what it's like, but I, I just like Mother Earth kind of, you know, doing her thing, despite what men think. It's like a cosmic reset in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's turning out there's all to know their families again. <laughs> That's true. I think uh, if people if people are taking the time, I, I think that's really valuable is to take a pause and say, you know, what am I doing? And I actually wanted to I wanted to launch in on the 
question of um, how did you get to be such a free spirit? <laughs> well, you have to go way back on that one because you know my, you know your my my parents, your grandparents, they were uh, very open-minded and free people. So I was raised, you know, it helps to be the baby of the family for one, to get, you know, to not have a lot of baggage from early childhood. <laughs> but uh, also, you know, um, you know, they were just so open-minded and uh, really encouraged us all to be just individuals and do what we wanted and we're never judgmental about what we wanted and you know uh my you know my path took me to you know pretty out there kind of you know um lifestyle and things you know they were always just totally supportive so i never had anything i was having to rebel against really other than you know the system which has plenty of things to rebel against so I, you know, pretty much the, that, that was the, that laid the fertile ground for me to kind of just pursue a life that, you know, was based on what I think is, uh, what a good life is and, and not, nothing conventional, you know, being pushed on me about that. And in fact, quite the opposite being actually being, you know, encouraged to do whatever it is that I wanted to do and. I found a lot of good, interesting things to do, you know. So I credit that with the greatest aspect for that. And then, you know, just growing up when I did in the 70s, you know, high school in the 70s and stuff. And basically, you know, we look at the world right now, but then we had, every, you know, most of the people I know that were conscious uh, at all looked at it like, you know, we're going to get, destroyed in a nuclear war between superpowers that's the way it really looked and you know i when i was in my junior year of high school i was had to be registered for the draft for vietnam and vietnam ended you know i was registered for the draft but vietnam ended so that took a big burden off me of going to someplace i didn't want to be involved with and and then um having the thing with the nuclear powers and, you know, it seemed like to a lot of us like imminent, you know, uh, war and probably the end of the earth. So, you know, it drove me towards the hills and that's why I ended up being a, becoming a homesteader and, you know, just hiding out kind of on the Canadian border, living a lifestyle of simplicity instead of, you know, thinking that the system was going to last long enough for me to do good in it. I really didn't, I thought, quite the opposite you know so yeah what what was that like being signed up for the draft at such a young age and not knowing whether you were going to go I mean had you resigned to the fact that you may be going to war you know I think I just I by then Vietnam was so unpopular and you know whatever you know, I've had earlier in life, like in junior um, high school, you know, I, before I really, you know, turned on to 
the, you know, my own thoughts as much. I was really interested in, you know, going into, I was in civil air patrol and, you know, I thought I'd become a pilot and, you know, be part of military and stuff. But then as I got a little older and started, you know, analyzing what was going on more, I just was at that point, I felt like, you know, I'm not, I'll go to Canada or I'll do this. This is not defending my country. This is just, you know, uh, oppressing another people. So I, I really didn't, I wouldn't have gone, even if my draft number would have come up, I'd have found a way to escape, you know, and, and live another life somewhere else. So that it was a lot of pressure, you know, in high school because, you know, everybody dreaded it, you know, the thought of going to this unpopular war and then, and then have it, you know, so many people not coming back and stuff. So not really my, you know, my idea of fun yeah. or duty. I would serve, you know, my country in a positive way, but not that way. Not like that, yeah. just as a, you know. So that, Did, that kind of led me out to the woods, which was good because everything in high school after that kind of took me another direction, you know. Uh, in what way? Well, what happened was because I lived in a rural place, uh, Estacada, Oregon, you know, logging town, pretty redneck, you know, but I also lived, it was, you know, in the woods. So I always had a lot of time. My dad raised me with camping, you know, a lot of camping. And I was the one out of the whole family that really took to that life. You know, I love that stuff, fishing. I mean, in high school, I tied I, I tied flies. I taught myself to tie flies and sold them to a local fishing store. And, you know, I spent a lot of time fly fishing. I liked just anything to do with camping. Even as a kid, you know, I used to save my mom's S&H green stamps she'd get from shopping. And I'd go through and buy camping gear. And I'd built up this pack and all the things just from, you know, using the S, cashing in the S&H green stamps for camping gear and stuff. So I was already that way. I just loved wildlife, loved, you know, I was always the one around in the outdoors and stuff. So everything kind of played into it. And then, you know, give you a little impetus to get away from the system based on that it looked like it was failing you know i i gladly went towards the mountains and, and found it to be just you know like home to me so and you was, did that right was, after was, high school oh yeah yeah so i graduated like a half a year early and then i basically had um my neighbors had this old 52 gmc and it was just you know in the weeds grown over and i asked them if I could buy it for 50 bucks. And they said, yeah, brought it home. And I was mechanically inclined. So I rebuilt it or I rebuilt the carburetor and it got running and I got it all decked out. And then that's when I left home, I took off in that for Northern Idaho because that seemed like a, you know, a good place for the mountains and stuff. So I headed for, just headed North, ended up in Sandpoint, Idaho and found this hundred year old cabin to caretake that was up at the end of a county road up in the mountains. And, uh, and, you know, it just started figuring out who I was away from home, you know, being on my own and stuff just started, you know, but it was, you know, basically who I am now. I can't 
say that, you know, I've learned immense amounts about living in the woods, but I was totally at home in the woods, you know. <laughs> That's, so right. you were up, were you up there by yourself? Yeah, yeah, I lived by myself and, uh, you know, I, this guy who had stopped my truck, it broke down in that area on the highway and this guy stopped to help me and then he goes, oh, you know, are you looking to stay up here? And I, yeah, I, I would like to. And he goes, well, I have this place, I need a caretaker, you know, I'll take you up there. And so I ended up towing my truck up there and, uh, and then just living in this hundred year old log cabin. And, uh, the guy was going, went back, he lived in Tucson he went back home and then he'd come out every once in a while and check on. We ended up building another cabin off of that cabin that was about the same size. And I learned some skills that way. And, you know, uh, it ended up being a good scene for me for the first year on my own, you know. But yeah, that's incredible. Really remote. Bobcats in the yard, and you know, it was it was wild. It was super wild. There was all national forest behind me, so you know, I got to see all the the animals coming through the property and stuff. So it was a what good was start. And I, would, yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. Well, There's a little bit of a lag. Yeah, I know that. That go ahead. I was done. No, I just I just wanted to ask um, because I think a lot of listeners are younger. How did you figure out how to start building with no internet? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. How do you resource information? Well, that's one of the. I guess it's a bless. You know, the internet is great for just be able to look something up in an instant and prove your friend wrong about what he just said, you know, or right. If it's you, if it's you saying it, all this information about how to do stuff, but probably a lot of that information came from people like me who just went up and figured it out. It's not rocket science, but it does have all these nuances that you have to learn. And, you know, you, you can learn, sometimes you can be given a way to learn that has no uh, questions and it will just work. And then another way is just to do it and see the ways that don't work. And then when you learn the ways that work, they are much more strongly ingrained in your psyche that, you know, because you actually had to create the difference between what doesn't work and what works, you know? So a lot of it was like that. There was some weak points in building that log cabin because neither the guy nor me knew enough about it, but it was a strong cabin. It just wasn't as fancy as it could have been, you know. You know, your basic structure, you can go out and just find, you have a saw and an axe and cut down some trees and skin them and, and stack them on top of each other and spike them together with big nails and, and you know, fix the cracks that are between them. You know, that's the hard part. It's like, you know, a sheet of plywood, four by eight, a log is like, you know, eight inches wide and there's a crack between there so you got to fill that in with something that'll stay so there's a lot of you know a lot of details you know it isn't Arkansas, but it does have a lot of ways that are better to do things you know yeah. down to these highly crafted ones that are just fit together like so tight you know if you know how to do it so what, you know, what, did, it, what did you fill the cracks with well there's different ways that people have. And one of them is to just take like a fiberglass insulation and stuff it in there. So what you do is you hammer nails 
kind of at the edge of the crack every, you know, so often to hold the stuff in, then you stuff in something like that. You can use innumerable things. A lot of people just use like mortar mixed with say sawdust or, and you just pack that, the wet mortar in there, but it can shrink. So you gotta have, you know, sometimes people put uh, chicken wire in there and that helps hold the mortar or the nails, like I said, and stuff insulation. And then you mortar on top of that, like fiberglass insulation, you know? So there's a ton of ways I've had cabin, you know, since then I went on to live in many cabins and, you know, at times I just stuffed, use clothing into the space between I'd stripped out, go to the thrift store and get big bags of clothing and tear them into strips and, you know, maybe wind them up into a spiral and stuff them in that gap. But usually that was like in the middle of winter when the things I did failed. Yeah. So, you know, there's one thing if you're just in the spring, summer, out nice weather, building a cabin and doing it right. And there's another when you're already in a place that's old or like the one I was in a hundred years old. They were sealed on the edges with old newspapers that were like super old and then you could still read and then they just poured sawdust into the stud, like hundred year old logs and the inside they framed in a wall. So I would stick, uh, they were full of sawdust, but the sawdust had leaked out. So you'd have holes where the air could just pass from the outside and the inside. And I found the best thing was just to get this, you know, free or cheap clothing, you know, probably and just stuff, have it block the wind, you know, and it's not a hundred percent, but it was a hundred percent better than what it was, you know? <laughs> so, totally. yeah. What tricks is, of living. Yeah. It, I mean, I feel like that's probably it, trial and error. Uh, is like a forgotten activity these days. It seems like it. Right. And we have so many more products. Like people would just go buy expanding foam, but they're really what. So, you know, it's my part of it's due to the period of time and also my socioeconomic position, which was basically uh, that of being incredibly poor. And, you know, I had, I would go do jobs and get a little money and then I would, you know, survive on that for a while. My thing was never, you know, steady work. I got work at the local mill and the toughest job at the local mill. And, you know, they were amazed that I made it being a skinny young guy, but uh, I took it on and, and did good. And then the mill all of a sudden, like a month later, economic people didn't get paid, but the guy liked me so much that he gave me a draw, even though I didn't ask for it, just the day before they closed. So I got most all my money, while most of the other mill workers who had even been there for years didn't get theirs and had to go into a class action suit. I don't think anybody ever got much, but you know, I, just because the guy had, you know, he, had, I got respect from him because I actually, you know, took on the job and and did it, which was called Tail Sawyer, which the logs would roll in on a big chain, big logs, and then uh, three big saw blades would cut them into slabs that weighed like, you know, two, 300 pounds each. And then I was right in front of that saw. So a chain would throw them towards me onto another chain. And I had to make sure the rounded side was up, 
like that it, you know that they were rounded towards the narrower part of the cut because the logs round so you've got your edges have an angle you know so i had to make sure i flipped all the slabs onto the green shade and then they went on me and then they putting into lumber but it was super challenging and you know it almost killed me a few times but uh you know i stayed with it i liked it i liked that kind of stuff actually yeah you mentioned that you lived up in idaho for the first year what where did you go after that did you stay there or did you go somewhere else so no this is interesting because uh i i ended up moving into town with i started meeting some people and then i ended up moving into guys who worked at a, a restaurant a fancy seafood restaurant that was in cardiff California and up there so I lived with them for a while and had some different places around that area that were a little closer to town because I got another job working for um, like weatherization services the government had this service to give you know make storm windows for low-income people and stuff like that so I'd go around doing that so I had to be closer to town And um, interesting because I was just in Tenasket here in the Okanagan like two days ago when the farmer's market happens. And we were driving by and I, you know, the rest of the people with me, I said, go ahead and go in. I don't want to go in because I'll see too many people I know and I won't be able to get out of talking to them. But people I haven't seen, you know, 10 years, 20 years, but they're part of the, the fabric of this community now. So I go see that guy walking across the street when I came to the Okanagan he gave me a ride from Northern Idaho in his school bus that skull strapped on the front of it. And he had his family and kids, they were hippies. And uh, I met him and asked, he told me where he was going. I said, Hey, can I get a ride? And he goes, sure. And he drove over to the Okanagan from Northern Idaho and dropped me off. And uh, that started my life in the Okanagan really, you know? So it was, uh, and we, as a kid, my dad had, you know, worked for all the, the dams for Bonneville Power here, the electrical generation company. And so we moved around. We lived right near the Bridgeport, 20 miles from the Okanagan. So I already knew the area, but once he dropped me off there, which it's more desertous in the Okanagan than in Northern Idaho, and that just melted me. I loved it. I loved the more arid, you know, and now I end up in, you know, uh, Southern Arizona, which is total desert. But I think that I just was finding my way towards my environment, which was desert. And, you know, the Okanagan is a arid, uh, you know, mountainous area. And I love that. It's like, it took a few years for me to move there, but, uh, you know, I had my sights on it at that point. And so what did you do when you got dropped off? Like, like, what were you doing? Did you find work or did you find some land or? You know, I, at that first time when I got here, I did, I went and I, um, the apple harvest, that's why he was coming over there with his family was the apple harvest had begun. And that was back in those days, that was mostly hippies and hobos. Uh, he had an orchard he was going to and they hired me to so I got 
I got a job working in an orchard and worked for a while, got some money and then headed off uh, to other dreams and ideas. You know, I always had uh, a love affair with sort of rolling homes. So I, you know, started going after my dream of making my first house truck, you know, my first, uh, uh, which was like an old Metro bread band that I, it's just custom, you know, uh, home for myself and loved it. You know, and I have had several that I've built myself, but that was the first one. So I, I took the money from the apples and, you know, I had some new friends up there to, as connections and stuff, but went off back to Oregon and started, you know, working different things. I did so many different, you know, sort of, um, I don't know if you call it migrant work. Now it kind of is, but at the time, you know, I was, a, I did tree planting, you know, and tree planting really led me on, you know, made me much more money than anything else. I, I picked daffodils for a while in Northern California. And, you know, I was making back then I was making like 200 bucks a day, which was huge for migrant work. It was like, you know, I was good. I made it, I was good at it. And, and, you know, did it to make money in a short time. And my, that was my MO was sort of go out, work real hard, make a bunch of money. And then, t which was a bunch to me, it might've been five grand, you know, and, and travel and live off it for a while and experience stuff. And then, then find another one. And, you know, a lot of them were the, that kind of work where, you know, you, you, it's seasonal. That's really what it is. It's more seasonal work. So, yeah, I just latched on because there wasn't a lot of commitment, but you could make good money if you knew how to do it. Yeah. What so. I'm curious, I don't think I've ever asked you this question in any of our conversations, but what is your, how, what's your philosophy on money? On money? Well, you know, I'm still learning what that is because although I, you know, when I, when I was 20, I had lived Latin when I was 24, um, you know, my uh, first daughter came, Sarah, you know, and she, you know, then I more tried to kind of settle in, homestead. that's when I mostly started to think about, you know, having to have some money to support more than myself, because I could wing it anyway, you know, I could, I could get by, I'd dumpster dive, you know, whatever it took, you know, at times, I mean, I was eating, you know, ice cold frozen ice cream right out of the dump, you know, that I found in a dumpster, whole cases of it that were still frozen and perfectly good. I don't know why they put them away, but, you know, you get it right after they threw it, you had good ice cream stuff. I could, I, I ate a lot of good stuff, you know, out of dumpsters. <laughs> I also knew how to uh, kind of get, go around, find, find cheap food, find, you know, food, it, in my, I didn't have a real developed eating. It could have, been, but it made me, it, it kept me fed. And, you know, once you have a family, you don't really want to, you know, live off dumpsters. So, you know, though plenty of people are having to these days. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I kind of got into trying to find more stable stuff and, um, the tree planting had been good for me and I kind of started a company right after Sarah was born that, um, we did, 
we'd go out and put these nets over the trees after they were planned to keep deer and elk from eating them. So I did my, that's when I got into contracting and then I started contracting, but I still, you know, I was just living off grid. Uh, you know, we had, uh, we basically arrived in my 42 international school bus to my first piece of land. And I was against land ownership, you know, I was against wealth, I was against everything that, that makes um, for inequities, uh, you know, within the people kind of things that one person's rich and therefore somebody else is poor, like maybe everybody couldn't be rich. So, you know, I've always had an extreme sense of not wanting to um, have my my well-being or wealth based on anything but, you know, healthy things and hard work and not using other people in order to get it, you know? So I've always had a lot of, you know, social sense that way as far as, just, you know, that it has against the people who don't have resources. So I did, you know, a lot of my own things. I, I started making, I learned how to make willow furniture. This meant with furniture and I could market that. And uh, I, while well, we, you know, we, we got a hold of a piece of land to live on. Just, so I brought my old school bus, Little Bill, and parked there for the first year, but the winters are cold and you don't want to live in a school bus with a metal floor in the winter. It's just not a good idea. You, you freeze and then your head is burning up. Like I put a wood in it. So the heat was all in the ceiling. So your head is hot, sweating, feet are freezing. That's the life of school bus living in a, in a cold environment, you know, but, and then the summer it's hot, you know, you can at least open the window, but, um, so we, there was sort of an unfinished cabin on the property of these people and they had moved away into town and I contacted them. I just was riding horses with a friend one day and saw the place and contacted the people and they said, yeah, you know, we're not going to be back up there. So you guys can, you can live and I said, I'd pay the property tax, which is like 300 a year. So that's what I started having, you know, to do that. And I still was against owning land, but I, I liked that place. And after a few years there, you know, I decided they went to move back East and asked me if I wanted to buy. And at first I said, no. And then they put it on the market. People started showing up and I said, yes. And so I bought it 20 acres for $12,500, which I still own. That's our homestead. So, you know, uh, if you think about that 600, basically yeah. and uh you know you just can't i mean it's so private it's so lush it's so a stream and and it's the end of the road nobody behind me it was just like paradise to me so i just started kind of felt like that i even though i was working to keep us surviving i kind of lived my retirement you know between like you know say 25 and and you know 40 and then I started realizing that, you know, you need to, if you live on property that long, you really should, you need some resources in order to, you can cleaning stuff, free lumber here, this or that, but it's a real mismatch type of structure, you know, that you can build out of that. I mean, I would glean a lot of stuff, but at the same time, I realized, hey, I got to, I need resources. 
So I started working a little harder. I spent all summer working. Um, I got involved in building trails and that started in 1984. And so, uh, as I felt more confident, I was able to land bigger and bigger contracts till I was making a decent living and we could start to support ourselves, you know, with that money that was made in like four months of year in the summer because you can't build trail in the winter up in the Northwest. So I uh, took that and, you know, took that as far as I could for the amount of the length of the seasons and the money I could make. But, um, still just felt like after 20 some years of being in the same place, I was kind of limited. I want, you know, if I wanted to build a new house, I needed more money than I was making. And, and uh, I ended up, I had this opportunity to go to Arizona and do some work building some alternative uh, earth-based houses. And that led to trail jobs in Arizona, which led to year round trail jobs in Arizona, because you can do that there because the temperatures, you know, and, the season. So that, then I finally started making some money that I could like, you know, I started building my retirement at 50. I did, you know, I had nothing but that piece of land before that. And, uh, and so really I did, I'm kind of like a flip flip flop from the average person who builds goes when they're young, does their work, builds their retirement and then takes it off. Now I'm, you know, 62 i'm still working well you know totally into my um my career and i love it and still work at it and will for a while you know but uh i've at least been able to replace the time all that time that i lived simply with my children and you know my partners that i wouldn't have i wouldn't have changed anything about that because they got to live and just see as you know children they were they were just exposed to the most you know um the simplest lifestyle that you can have really almost without living in a cave with you know like a renunciant or something you know with in a way i was that might have been what i'd been if i didn't have the kid but with the kids we did a little better and you know it, it, we weren't in a tent at least but you know it wasn't much much more than that our our structure was very loose and cold in the winter and you know i work like that's why i know so much about all this stuff is just trying to make ends meet with very little money you know yeah so has your view of money changed over time i mean it, because it's such a it's such an interesting path that i think it, it's definitely not for everyone I think you have to believe in some sort of connection with nature, which is arguably that's universal. But I'm just wondering how, how did that, I mean, you, you're describing you only used money as a tool to get to the things that you needed for this sort of basic existence. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, you know, being older, it's not that like, you know, like anyone, I could appreciate a five-star resort, you know, on a beach somewhere, but that's not really my driving thing. My driving thing is to, you know, just be able to provide for myself a comfortable existence, you know, on a, on a pretty meager level. Like I don't, I'm not a, a big, you know, uh, I don't have big dreams about toys or fancy living. You know, I know the, it, I can see the attraction of it, but 
you know, my highest moments in my life is just sitting on some cliff, you know, watching the sunset and, and, uh, and immersed in nature. That's to me there, you know, there's not much better than you can do. You know, a five-star resort is great because they bring you drinks right to your, you know, your, you know, but I'm not laying in the sun. I'd rather be building a new trail for a five-star resort to get the people out of their, their lounge chairs and doing something and appreciating the, maybe, you know, the habitat of their, of where the resort is, you know, but uh, I, I really, um, you know, I've progressed through, you know, just having these beater rigs that be, you know, I'm a, a master mechanic because I've had to fix my own rigs, you know, and I, I went from that. You remember I had all those old Volvos mm -hmm. and was even up Volvos for other people. That was another side business, you know, just another thing to pad the, the shallow account, you know, of money. And they all collectively worked to get us by. And, you know, we never were, we're dying of starvation, though at times, you know, we were eating brown rice and, you know, with the maybe some brewer's yeast on it for protein or whatever, you know, we, at times it was meager, but that makes you appreciate everything. All, all those experiences make me have uh, this sense of appreciation for, um, for just enough, not too much, you know, not, I, I, I'm appalled by the waste of our society and the way the world is all aspiring to that same thing. And, you know, we're just destroying the planet. I've always been conscientious of just trying to minimize my footprint uh, just to try to at least it might not make a difference on the, the big scale, you know, but at least personally, it kept me in the integrity I have, you know, wanted for myself to, to be, to minimize. So a lot of reuse, a lot of taking used things and making them work again, a lot of just stuff like that, things people were throwing away, take them home, fix it, make it one of your, you know, amenities or one of your appliances, whatever, you know. So, yeah, my, that's my feeling about money in general, like, is that, uh, you know, I've had enough of it. I've been flush at times, you know, that I could feel like, hey, you know, this is great. You know, it makes you just, but it lead, led me into things that weren't necessarily healthy for me. You know, like uh, some people can probably be super healthy and wealthy and, you know, not uh, but the trappings of wealth is all these different things that really, for me, you know, if I was going to do that, I was going to go for the the wild stuff because that's the way I am. And and that would have, I might be alive today if I would have had money, you know, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I know you well enough to know what wild stuff means, but what, I mean, what does that, what does that mean to you? Well, it probably, you know, it never has meant like, say, a Ferrari, though I love, not, I'm a lover of, you know, classic cars and stuff like that. You know, it probably would have more just got into debauchery of of a sense of, you know, who knows what it'd be, you know, hookers and, 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 and whiskey or what. I don't know. Whatever it was, I'm glad that didn't happen. And, you know, I... I can see how people, especially people like who 
find sudden wealth, you know, they become, they're not really as, you know, well versed in it and they fall into stuff like that and it just destroys their life. I've seen people, even hippies that have gotten, um, you know, uh, you know, family money, uh, inheritance. And then, man, they just went off the deep end, you know, snorted a hundred thousand dollars worth of cocaine in one year, whatever, they just spent it and never, and then we're back to where they were actually safe. If they lived through it, they were back to no money where they actually, it saved them, you know, to be safe and just got rid of it. But they, they wouldn't have invested it and tried to make their life better. They would have just done that and then gone back to living in a cave or whatever. And I know people who've lived in caves, you know, it's like, uh, I was around the most earthy of people that just were like-minded and that, you know, we didn't want, and a lot of them came from wealthy families and they could have had family money, but they didn't want it. They wanted, and still do, like many of them are still living up here in the Okanagan and they, they don't, uh, they never went that way. They just rejected that as not good and not good for the earth, not good for them not good for the earth. Ultra consumption is destroying our earth. You know, what we really need is this minimalist. You know, I am totally conscious of every bag of garbage that I put in the trash of how much of it I didn't even need, you know? So, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a principle that I live by and, you know, every, nobody's perfect. Everyone struggles with, you know, you, you get some money, you want to go do some fun. And I have, you know, I, on occasion, I, I'm in a four star resort, you know, and I can take it for about two, three days. And then I'm like, well, what do I do now? I got to do something, <laughs> you know, so I'm not very good at just lounging. I got to say that I'm not, I'm not your lazy hippie. I'm your kind of, you know, over, overzealous, you know, uh, worker that I just, I have this work ethic that just carries me through everything, whether it's a paying job or not, it's a work ethic and it makes me keep doing stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's, how how did you, were you reading any spiritual texts along the way? Because I think one thing, one, one thing that I can relate to is that as I've got, I went a pretty traditional path after some early fuck-ups as you know and I I got really obsessed with staying on that traditional path to kind of keep me out of trouble and along the way I think it was somewhere early in being a father I just started asking myself like why am I spending all my time chasing physical paper when what brings me joy is those the time and the experience that I spend with my children and my family. And so it, it has become, I, the only way I can describe it is a spiritual journey, but I'm curious if you were reading along that because you're, I mean, you're, in my mind, you're the definition of a free spirit. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I, I did, I'm not a club girl. I'm not really a club person and it's affected everything in my life from not being part of organized hippie communities. Even though I was a hippie, I've always been a loner hippie. You know, I was always, uh, 
just wanting, you know, but I had those same friends from those communities maybe, but I just couldn't, I never was that. And same goes for, you know, my spirituality. I, I couldn't really latch on to any established thing, partly just because uh, that it is sort of this club mentality. I never had that. I, I was always an iconoclast in my own, you know, in my own right. So I went, um, you know, like most people, a lot of people in the 70s, spirituality was kind of budding. And, you know, I read books like Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi. That was one of my first ones that really affected me. And then uh, I also read the beat writer, Jack Kerouac, On the Road, stuff like that. I, I had kind of more of an inclination towards being this freewheeling traveler. It just opened to everything. Then, you know, some closing it down to some spiritual practice or religion. But I also was very, you know, aware that of that there of creation and nature and the beauty and that there must be, you know, and and the possibility of greater powers than, you know, what we think. So even when I was 22, you know, I made it to uh, I went to India. I hitch I hopped freights from Portland to uh, the the freight train derailed in the Midwest. I was asleep and dehydrated. I didn't even know it derailed and got off and walked five miles to a freeway, went to Kansas City, hitchhiked to Kansas City and got a drive-away car to New York City. I landed in a basement in, in a parking garage in Manhattan. And uh, these guys had... Uh, the guys who met me, they were like mobster guys. Oh, excuse me. Hang on one second. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Wait, gangsters in New York. Hang on. There, I just hung it up on him. It was an 808 number, sir. Okay. Uh, yeah, so are you up again? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not, we don't, okay, we so, don't edit. It's okay. People can take that time to reflect on the, what you just said in terms of knowledge. <laughs> so anyway, these two guys looked like hitmen for the mob met me and checked something in the trunk of this big LTD. I had driven out there and gave me a $20 tip and said, thanks, you know, and wait, what, how did you come mob. across these guys? Well, they were who the the car that I the driveway car I got in Kansas City was going to. They basically give you the car with a tank of gas. You pay the gas the rest of the way, and then they, and when you you deliver it to wherever it says it was going. So this was Did, their basement in Manhattan, and these guys met me, looked in the trunk, and then they find whatever was in the trunk was still there. Evidently, that they wanted. I don't know. It could have been. No, I didn't. I never did use the trunk. And it could have been hidden in the spare tire or whatever. I don't know what it was, but I delivered this car to them and they gave me the 20. I walked out on the streets of Manhattan my first time ever and was just like, man, I'm free. You know, this is so great. And so then I, um, I was actually traveling with my friend Gray. And uh, so we went and found a place in, you know, NoHo to stay. I had a, a friend that was uh, a Rasta woman and uh, went and 
you know, oh, actually, no, I had a friend that from the community up in Okanagan, a girlfriend and her mom lived in Queens. So we went out and stayed at her place for a week or two before I went to Europe and then went on to Europe and uh, basically hitchhiked around, you know, every country of Europe uh, a couple of times, did the circumference of Europe and ended up in Greece. And then from Greece, I made my way. It was and the Iranian American embassy had just been burned and all these people have been taken hostages, which is a, a big moment in American history with the Middle East. And so I was going to travel over land through Iran, but that got foiled. So I ended up flying to Cairo and then to Dubai. I saw Dubai before it was developed, you know, Abu Dubai. And, and then I went from there to Karachi, Pakistan, where they had just burned the American embassy there and evacuated all Americans. And I had this diplomatic visa through my friend's parents were working for the agriculture department there. So I'm traveling through a country that everyone, there's no Americans and even the tourists have been evacuated because this was like a big deal, you know? I mean, I ended up like uh, going to the Indian border and getting deported back to Pakistan. So I was hitchhiking through Pakistan while the, the people were so nice to me. I walked in front of the burned embassy to go to the UN building where I managed to get a visa to India and then went back, hitchhiked back to India and then lived in India for the full time of my visa, which was like, you know, I ended up with eight months. It's a six month visa, but I kind of worked it, went out for a day and came back. So I traveled around India and, you know, I even ran into people I knew who were there to see their gurus, but that was never my thing. I was just a freewheeling traveler and I, with a spiritual slant. And um, I met individuals that completely shaped my life uh, spiritually that were completely not uh, nondescript, you know, uh, people. They, were, they weren't gurus. They were to me in a way, but they weren't. They were just people. But their point of view affected me towards that idea of mine of simplicity and just the most you know, being the most basic you know i mean one example is i i rented a bicycle in the state of rajasthan which is a desert state of india and the bike brand new bike three dollars for a month and uh i had this other canadian guy i'd met who played mandolin and i played flutes right and uh, we traveled on these one-speed bikes. It was a flat desert, so the one-speed bike worked. And we traveled like 500 miles uh, through the desert, you know, just like playing our instruments in the in these far-off villages that they hadn't even seen, you know, foreigners in forever, and they would hoard us and stuff and make us eat with the, the head person of the village and, you know, all this different stuff. But... Uh, you know, that was a perfect example. But in that time, I out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, I was low. We were low on water, me and the Canadian guy. And um, there was no one. It was bleak desert. And we ran across this goat herder out there just by himself with a bunch of goats near the road we rode on. And, uh, you know, I had a little Hindi. So I asked him, for, you know, questions about, you know, water. He shared his water with us, you know, and then he... Uh, and then we talked about, he asked, you know, he, his view of the world was so different that he thought I was from New Delhi, 
he didn't know, you know, like a thousand miles away, 800 miles away, but he didn't know the difference. I could have been what people in Delhi look like, right? This hippie with long blonde hair. Well, the guy, you know, at one point I remember we were having this profound conversation. I said, no, I'm actually from another, the other side of the world. He looked up, it was daytime and the moon was out. It was kind of towards the evening. And he looked up at the moon, he said, is that moon, that, 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 that moon, is that the same moon as where you are? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's the same moon. And, you know, I can almost cry about it right now. It, it, I just melted down like this guy, you know, this, this is it. This is, this is as profound as it gets, you know? So uh, that's the kind of experiences I had, various ones like that, that just realizing, you know, how beautiful people are that, you know, are simple and just how that, you know, in a sense is spirituality, just being in tune with what's around you. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't in tune in the sense that he had no worldly knowledge whatsoever. But we, the fact that that was both of our same moon bound us in this way that is, you know, just so profound. I can't even, you know, to this day, telling you it, it choked me up, you know. It's choking me up. So, it's uh, that's powerful, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I have various other, you know, meetings like that with just individuals who happen to be, and, you know, our conversations were as revealing, you know, as just so like this, you know. And so I really wasn't looking for a practice, looking for a, way of being, you know, a certain thing that was a way to God. I was really just experiencing God and finding people who, you know, gave me perspective on it and stuff. So that's incredible. That, I mean, uh, it's to not go and seek something you were experiencing, like what you already are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's on my phone, right? I'll shut it off. Uh, anyway, so yeah, and, it, and that, that was it. I, wa I really was just seeking life and answers, but not my questions weren't like, you know, who, who will save me or who will be this, you know, who, what, what will be. It was just, let's just go see the world and, and figure it out. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Unplug that thing. Old school phone. Yeah. Now hold on. Turn it off. There we go. Ringers off. Who cares who calls? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, that was, you know, a profound effect on my life. That trip to India, I was gone for a year. Mm -hmm. I just completely felt like a child of the earth. I, I didn't hardly contact my family. I didn't feel, a, you know, uh, even though I loved them, I didn't really, I was, you know, just ex exploring and I wasn't really looking for solace from home or, you know, they probably were worried as I wouldn't respond for months, you know, or there was nowhere to respond. I just wouldn't contact anybody because I really was just turning my soul free from, growing up and then being on my own and being out in the world. And I felt 
comfortable everywhere I went, every place I went, no matter what people think of those societies or this, I, I felt at home. I felt more at home in India in a way than I ever have here, you know, even though it wasn't my country and stuff and it's just sprawling poverty and all this stuff, but it's alive. And I just felt that just like my recent trip to the Congo, I, I just felt a lot like the this is life these people are living life they're not like it's not based on you know i mean they you know they had nothing yet they're ha they find humor and and their their emotions and feelings are so much more real and live you know we get we're kind of numb from our society doesn't you know really uh you know, encourage uh, that togetherness that people that are from countries like that have naturally because they've had to live as a society, you know, to hear society, try to think of what, you know, you think of high society or, you know, what, but even amongst families or, you know, there's never the kind of thing that there was in those countries. And it's partly due to the, you know, the poverty of the people being in a position to have to you know, live that way. And by, for me, it was by choice, but still I had no money. Sometimes though they were feeding me, you know, these incredibly poor people were offering to share what little they had with me just because that's just how they are. And to me, those, that's real. That's, that's people. That's, that's what humanity is about. Not making yourself so wealthy that you can call the shots on everything that goes around you. You know, let's leave some, let's leave it up to just trust in life and trust in what it will bring you. And, you know, there was time people tried to kill me, but it, you know, there was different things on all my travels like that, but you know, it always worked out and I always trusted, you know, even in those cases, I wasn't really afraid. I knew there was to be a way to resolve and it would, you know, so. How, how did you know? I, re I remember a story around someone trying to rob you. I, I would love to hear that. Yeah, so that was a funny story, but I, I was um, traveling with a friend, but we weren't getting along, so we split off, and, and I went off down. It beat Dura, the Spanish islands, you know, and he went off somewhere else, I think, in France. And we had settled that we would meet in a month at this post office in Marseille. But that's, we said the central post office, we figured there would be one in Marseille. So a month later, I left Formentura. I loved it on Formentura, just living on a blanket on the sand and eating goat met products, you know, and, you know, watermelons and goat cheese. And, uh, and so I reluctantly left. This happened a couple of times where I, in my travels where I made, I had made this commitment to meet somebody. So I had to go. So I left when I, I at the time, you know, and went and I, you know, hitchhiked and took it, maybe got on a train in France that went to Marseille and, and it got off, I got off, but, you know, I'd asked somebody where the main post office was. And they said, well, there really isn't one. So I just got off at this stop and walked out into the train station and, you know, was at trying to get my way around in this strange city. 
And the area was really like the North African section of Marseille, which has a lot of North Africans because it's the port from, you know, in Southern France. So these guys, I'm walking around the airport and, and all of a sudden I come by, there's a little bookshop. I was going to ask about the post office thing again. And there's my friend standing there. It's like a 3 million, 4 million, you know, and he turned out that he had come there to meet me and had a apartment nearby. But so we went, you know, it's amazing coincidence. And so we went there and it was in this kind of three, four story brick building. And it was all like really poor North African families. And uh, I remember the, it was a shared bathroom on the second floor. So I went up to use the bathroom and this guy comes in right behind me with this giant Bowie knife. And, you know, there was a big language barrier and everything, but I, I figured out that, you know, he wanted me to buy his shirt. He was, you know, it wasn't just straight robbery. It was like, he was going, you know, money for his shirt kind of thing. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just up here in the bathroom. I don't have any money, but in my room, it was like the, you know, sort of like the, the, the Billy Goats gruff. <laughs> so I go in my room, I have money, right? So he comes down, he follows me down there holding this big knife to my back. And, you know, I go in and, you know, and as soon as I went in, I got some separation between him and he's standing there holding the knife and you buy my shirt, buy my, you know, you, and, and then I had my friend and he had a friend he had met that was in it. So it was three of us. So this guy stands there like, you know, holding the knife towards all of us and screaming, we have to buy a shirt. And, you know, I go, I'm not going to. There was too many of us and his chances weren't that good. So he backed out, but he made it sound like he was coming back with his gang or whatever. So we basically took all the print. They barricaded stayed the night and left the next day and nothing ever became of it but somehow i got out of it you know but that's not the first time i've had knives guns i mean i've had people hold knives on me three times i've had people hold guns on me twice you know i've, I've been in so many situations where the common thing was that i shouldn't have been there and you know i've had all this stuff and all of it has kind of dissolved into something, you know, manageable anyway. So. Yeah. How did you process that from uh, the perspective of like not freaking out? Because I think most people would just go instantly to panic and fear. Right. I don't know. I've always had, you know, I don't think it, it, I don't think it's like, I almost would have said like a superiority thing, but it isn't that because I don't feel better than anyone. But I've always just felt like that I've had this sort of um, ability to convert things into something else, you know, whatever it is. It, it comes from everything, my, but also emotions people, you know, and all these people, I just talk sense to them, like the different people who have held things on me. I've, you know, I've always just kind of kept, I never really had the fear. It wasn't a mat. I never felt the fear. You know, I've had fear, like in Congo, I have fear that I would be macheted to death based on the situation I was in, but only maybe two out of 10 nights, you know, <laughs> right before I went to sleep. But, you know, I, for some reason, 
all these situations that, you know, I never, I never would know how I would react in these kind of situations other than having had these experiences and that I just sort of converted it into something else. And, you know, I think I have compassion for the people. I never looked at them as bad. I just looked at them as being desperate, you know, and tried to help them resolve their things sometimes, you know, and, and I just, uh, it's, it's just, a. Uh, I guess I almost take it for granted, but I've almost felt like that uh, somehow I was protected. And my protection came from just sort of that spiritual belief that you're talking about, you know, what you were asking about, that I just felt like that, um, you know, there's, there's some higher power or something that is, you know, based on living a good life and trying to be fair to my brother man and brother and sister man you know that I would be uh that it would be okay and you know that's always been true that's a hundred percent been true you know that I have been able to to have that some people aren't as fortunate yeah. there's situations where it might be different but at least I would have wanted to go out that way anyway not feeling like you know that oh I'm gonna die you know or something like that I never thought that in any of these situations and I don't know why I can't, I, in a way you asked a good question. Cause I can't really, that's the best I could do to answer it. You know, <laughs> I think that's a perfect answer though, is that you, uh, you have to just believe it. I'm, I'm not, as you know, I didn't grow up in any sort of like structured, organized religion or anything like that. And somehow life has its way of bringing these important questions to the forefront of your experience. And it doesn't, I, I really appreciate what you said about not following any sort of structure, because I think in general, people are just so tribal in nature that they latch onto these things, right? I'm American. Mm -hmm. I'm from Texas. I'm Indian. Yeah. I'm South American. I'm this, that. And we try to oh, label wow. all these things. And that's where we get in trouble is that like the, the story about the guy pointing to the moon is like, I mean, seriously, it's, I, I felt that experience and I've had experiences like that on my own in life with my kids or with uh, just random strangers where you're like, holy shit, everybody's yeah. just the same. Right. It's humanity, not like, uh, country in that and my why I do so well in countries is I've never looked at any kind of people as any different than me everyone is just human condition uh take care of our families we're trying to you know enjoy life if we can we're trying you know we're all everybody's looking for the same thing they're all the same there is no differences and I never have had a inkling in my soul that anyone no matter where they're from or how they look is any different than me. You know, we're all in the same boat. And, uh, and that's in traveling. I think people recognize that, you, you know, uh, the most stark contrasts for me being in, in some place like the center of Africa and Congo and, you know, just, I just felt at home with the people and they sensed that I wasn't, you know, pretentious or, uh, or, you know, feeling superior to them or anything. I love them. I love, you know, what supposedly is this, uh, 
shithole. But to me, it's like, this is, this is humanity. This is, you know, humankind. This is our, this is our lot in life. And this is everyone has it. It's no matter what your socioeconomic position, but I can relate more to theirs because it's just getting fed and, and having a roof over your head, you know, food, clothes, and shelter. That's what it boils down to in the end. What do we, you know, what do we need actually to live? Food, clothes, and shelter. Though that's it. Everything else is superfluous. You know, we can live without it. And the more we live without it, the better we're we're going to be saving, you know, our planet and 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 helping other people to be able to survive. You know, yeah. So, it, and how did you how did you end up in the in the Congo? Because it's I think you were hired by the National Park Service, correct? Right. So the Congo is off limits to actual U.S. government employees because it is a um, considered a dangerous place. And so the Forest Service has a program of trying to help countries with things like forest inventories so they know what their carbon footprint is for some of these carbon uh, initiatives that are in the United Nations. Mm-hmm. So the Forest Service actually have programs in 93 countries to help as advisors uh, to help the people progress on those same levels with theirs. And so the Forest Service came to me saying that, you know, in the trail community, I looked like the the most, you know, possible person to have be interested in doing this, which I was. And, you know, I'm a, a designer, but I also know every aspect of my business. So they sent, they hired me on contract because they can do contract workers in places like that, but just not government employees. So I was a contract worker and I was there as a, you know, sort of an ecotourism development consultant. And so what I was doing was uh, consulting, but teaching, you know, I was in Barunga National Park, which is where those mountain gorillas are uh, that are endangered. You know, they're our closest relatives and there's only hundreds of them left. And, um, so, you know, I, I had a lot of consternation about it. I, I read articles, you know, by, um, by, you know, people in the field on this stuff about, you know, there's 130 different rebel groups that were operating out of the edges of the park, kidnapping people, terrorizing, you know, getting money from all this stuff. And so I knew what I was up against. When I, before I went, I knew that, you know, there was a strong possibility happen and stuff, but the possibility, you know, I couldn't pass it for my career in trails. I needed something, I wanted this international thing, but I have kids and grandkids now, you know, I wanted, I also had to consider that. And, you know, in the end, I took it up and went there, but, you know, I was surrounded by, I had a, a group of 12 soldiers with AK-47s and RPGs and 50 caliber machine guns, you know, with me at all times, just because, and the RPG was even shot off at a group 
that was getting too close to us that was probably a rebel group, you know. And they have firefights like this right after I left in the village I had been in for 10 days camping in a tent and by myself, you know, everyone knew I was there. It was the headquarters of the last rebel movement. And I was giving employment to locals because I was hiring the villagers to do, to teach them how to do trail work and build trails and pick. So, you know, I was well known. And if you're there, if you're known, you're known by everyone. And so like, this was, I think, was meant for me, but like less than a week after I left, a British couple was kidnapped right out of the village where I was staying, which has never happened because that's a protected area that was considered safe for the park. But I think that they actually were going planning something for me, and then I left, and then they just did this kidnapping to try to still get some money, you know. And in that case, the ranger... The, the woman ranger who I had befriended, Rachel, 24 years old, just, you know, incredible person. They've dedicated their lives to protecting these gorillas and the wildlife. Um, she got killed trying to protect that British couple. And they uh, ended up getting released like three days later. They had only asked for 200000 which is not very much for, you know, but they got money that somebody paid up. And they got released safely and their driver who also got wounded in the, in the, they really just came on them in their vehicle and ran them off the road and shot Rachel, you know, and then took the people. And that's the way it is over there. That's how unstable it is. It, you know, it's like in a lot of ways, it's worse than Syria. More health workers have been killed in Congo, in Eastern Congo, in the state that I was in, then in all of Syria and Afghanistan, they, they just, there's just all this stuff going on. And the whole purpose of me being there was to help the park build ecotourism, to, to give steady income to the villagers. So they turn away from this kind of stuff because they can make more money with a legit enterprise, like guiding people up the trail I was designing, you know, and selling them things and portering their their goods, you know, their, their gear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, I went there twice. I went once for a month and once for uh, two weeks. And, you know, my second trip really took some gumption to get going back because I knew how much danger I've been in, but it was, it was just life changing. And, you know, I, I really can't, I would never have changed anything about it. Uh, even, you know, I have the best memories and pictures of, my soldiers that I befriended and we had the greatest laughs and, you know, we just were people, not soldiers and civilians or, you know, um, black Africans and white American. They were just people and they were more readily that way than most of the people who come there, you know, because I seen how the white people who do come there still looked at them as a certain way, the tourists that do make it there because dangerous, you know, from, all these different countries and uh, they were, you know, they, there was a separation where for me, it wasn't there, you know, everybody's the same in my eyes that way. You know, I don't care if it's, you know, a billionaire or, you know, a beggar, I still look at them as the same validity as, you know, the same validity at, at life, you know, as each other. There is to me, there's absolutely no different. I've never been enthralled by, 
that whatever people call success, you know, it's to me, it's more something to be leery of than it is to be, uh, you know, because you know, what, who did you take advantage of, you know? Oh, your stocks are this are a distance away, but those stocks are, you know, subjugating people or, you know, um, people are dying. Our cell phones, you know, the cobalt come for our cell phones comes from Congo and people work as slaves to get that co that cobalt and are killed, you know, as youths to get that cobalt just or die from the conditions. It's like, how can you just take that for granted? You know, how can you consider that those things are, are, are okay? You know, yeah. so we buy, you know, and we, we, we go ahead and we have them and hopefully you try to do something useful with it, not just appease yourself, you know, use it to better the world around you. Just try to do something, even the smallest little community level in your own community or out on the national international stage like I was able to do. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that you were able to experience that. And I, like you, you mentioned, like when the government looked around, the national park service looked around and you were kind of the only guy that fit that bill. It's if, if you asked me, I, that's exactly who you are is like, you're able to go into these scenarios because you have, you have no judgment in your intention is pure. And that's, uh, I, f I feel like the lacking of community is a really important topic that is like not getting talked about in the American universe right now. Yeah. And we're, yeah. it, it hit me really strong when the, when the first uh, episode that I did was with a, a friend of mine named Johannes, who's from Ethiopia. He's 22. And when I asked him the question, what, what was the diff what's the biggest distinction in kind of growing up in Ethiopia, Ethiopia and your transition to America? And he was like, there's just no community here. And he lives in New York, so he's in a really intense place. But I think yeah. that's interesting that that thread is uh, some, something's awry. Yeah, well, it's because the, theirs are based on you know, actually their community is based on actual living communally in a way, you know, they're, they're much more reliant on each other to make it. And we are, but we don't acknowledge that because it becomes money and then it becomes the next thing. And that, that simple exchange where they're going straight from, I'm trading you rutabagas for beets or whatever, you know, or chickens, you know, stuff like that. Oh, that's a lot of the world is doing that. You know, it's not never even becoming money. And, uh, and here we have this at least one degree of separation from, you know, everything we get. We don't know where it came from. And usually it's multiple degrees of separation and we're not connected. And we're, what commonality can you have if all that your commonality is, is, you know, your possessions and, you know, your socioeconomic position, you know, those are things that draw groups together. Billionaires hang out with billionaires, you know. Uh, we, don't, we don't really have that even in our communities because, you know, uh, the most we get of 
that similarity as if you happen to have a group that goes to your church, but then, you know, if you're a church going person, then you would have people who have some commonality on a basis of this, but so that's not the really socially, socially is just our everyday lives. And, you know, Oh, you got that quad. I got one. I got this Polaris over here. You know, you got that. What do you think of that one? You know, and you know, stuff like that. It's all based out of, possessions things these other people don't even have they got you know a hut and what food they could get and maybe somebody gets you know a motorcycle and they can give a ride to five people on it you know stuff like that there's that that draws them together it's like they're it's sort of like uh you know their common um on you know misfortune in a way but brings them more together and our fortune tears us apart, keeps us apart because we can, we can buy, uh, sort of, uh, exclusivity from other people. We can, we can sort of through our money, meet our neighbors, never have to meet, you know, never have to get involved. And that's sort of the part of the American dream. I have the biggest problem with is that it's, yeah, the whole idea is you you can come here and you can make it and be successful, which is true if you work it and get the right breaks and, you know, especially if you're the right color, which is a big thing right now. But at the same time, how do you, um, you know, you can't, you know, the, the whole thing kind of makes people like more individual. Some people come actually and they were so immersed in the community that they're really happy to have that ability in America. But overall, it's not good for America because it makes us just separate. And the separate is not a good way for groups of people to live. You know, the, that, that sort of, we, you know, you have the possibility to be selfish here. And a lot of places you can't be selfish there's just no chance of that you know so they're both kind of just the condition of what the way it is but it's not you know and those people have culture based on just where they were born and and where they are and we but when you look at culture here what is it you know what is our culture it's hard to distinguish is our culture that we all go to walmart you know is our culture that you know we like cars we're kind of our, that's one of the things I've come over our car culture. So we like the ability to jump in the car and be independent. That's still selfish because you're just for no reason burning fuel, killing the planet. You know, it's like of our things are kind of like based on the backs of everyone else in the world. And we have nothing that is just ours hardly. It's all based on someone else's misfortune. In what way is that to live, you know? Yeah, it's I, I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of does life have to be a zero sum game? I don't th- in our society today. That's how the system is structured. It, everything's zero sum. It's I win, you lose. There's very few yeah. win, 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 even the win wins. If you start peeling back the layers, they're not real win-wins in most cases. And I think like the crazy thing is I'm thinking about it is like we have, we've gotten to this strange place in American culture. It's almost like watching a fucking cartoon where we run around saying, 
we're individuals, everybody earns their own lot, all this stuff. But there's this yeah. underlying human fabric that's required to make society work. There's fire departments, there's, there's uh, smoke jumpers for wildfires that break out. There's police departments. Yeah. There's all these things that are required as part of the fabric of society. And we're, whether you like it or not, we are communal in that way. We're just, I think that separation creates this like wall where you're like, I just pay my taxes and then I don't have to deal with, I don't have to know the firefighters right. in my town which is, it's just yeah. strange. It's like, it literally is like watching a cartoon. And we don't want to look at those as social services, but they are, you know, everybody wants to deny that there is some social fabric to our society that we're know that we're capitalistic or consumeristic, but we don't, we're not social. That's a big movement now, but you know, there's nothing that anybody has that didn't require some social that aspect you know and that's it like you said firefighters police uh, keeping that all those all the different aspects of of the society that actually do keep it running you know and you see and when those are gone what happens say in some place like uh you know somalia or something where their complete government's been wiped out congo's the same way because the government just pilfers all the profits from they're the richest country probably in the world because they have diamonds gold cobalt all the things come from congo yet the people are some of the poorest in the world because the government pilfers it all the government and corporations like many of these mines are owned by things like Sony and Panasonic so they can make sure they get their cobalt. And so they're actually giving, they're supporting these murderous rebels in order to get their product so they can keep making their dollar. Right. And so here you have a country that there are no, there's no social services because they just suck every bit of money and profit out of it for the rich people, for the elite that, that who's governing, whoever, you know, and then the poor people, they don't, the only medical even in Congo is from um, NGOs like doctors without borders, all the medical services there are there are from other countries just coming in with these, you know, nonprofits trying to help those people. But the government invests zero in their people. The roads, when the Belgians left, were paved. They're now mud holes that trucks get caught in for like, oh, two weeks blocking the whole highway. I mean, the, there is no pavement left. It's gone, you know. I mean, there's a few roads that do, but what was their third major highway was what I was working off in another area of Congo. And uh, it was just a giant mud pit, sometimes eight feet deep of of. Uh, trough that caught rigs giant you know even sem four wheel drive semis would just get mired in and and block the whole highway you know what would what's a highway we can't even imagine it being a highway we would think it's not even a country road but they're that's it their infrastructure has been robbed and nothing given back to them you know so everything comes from outside so they're in a way less socialist than we are because we actually provide all these services as part of our tax money you know so it's weird when you when you start adding that up it's like funny to, to think that 
I, do, I know too many people that have actually even told me that they made it on their own. And I can almost hardly stop from just snorting and, and laughing in their face and going, you know, you are living a huge illusion. And, you know, nothing that you have hardly even came from from yourself, you know. Right. So, you know, it's... That's a rough one. That's a hard one to deal with for me living in the society because, you know, this is the easiest place for me to make a living and, and come up with the money to do my other things. But I feel a great desire to go out and be able to give back to, you know, less fortunate people here or anywhere because there's so many of them and, you know, the system stacked against them, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of... This was why I was so interested in having a conversation with you because um, from my standpoint, and for those of you who don't know, Matt, Matt is my uncle and you're, you're the most interesting man in the world because you've lived this conscious free life where things that have bogged down most people, they don't even register on your radar. And I think that's a, it's not about that you don't care. Like you, you, every time I'm around you and it, it, where I see it most is like my, my kids, especially my boy, he's like to you or to him, uncle Matt is like, this, this is the adventure of a lifetime. <laughs> every time he's seen you, it's like, we're digging holes in the earth with a mini backhoe. We're finding buried treasure and $20 bills buried under dirt. <laughs> Right. But it, I think just by you putting out your experience, it, I, my, my whole view on the podcast is you never know who's going to resonate with it. You never know who's going to take something away from it and make a change. And you have the ability to make this butterfly effect. And that's the beauty of the internet. It's, there's a lot of challenges with it too, but there is a beauty in it where you can connect with someone who you never would have known and learn from their story. And I think the, I guess a sort of a question to wrap it up would be, what do you see as a step in the right direction? Because I think you are spending your life giving back. Like you go into the comedy, you're risking your life, you're helping impact how the, the people of the region where you were um, even look at Westerners. And so I think what, if you started to make a solution today, where, do, where does it start? What, what does it look like? Because it feels like we're at this critical inflection point in society where we need to change the trajectory of humanity. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, <clears throat> the one thing like when I track, you know, when I came back, if I was, um, you know, I had decided that if I was president, I would make it so that everybody that say their senior year in high school or their junior year, maybe better would go and live in another culture. And, you know, particularly for Americans, I believe that, you know, we have that most people are never exposed to what it really like out in the world. The news doesn't give it, you know, the shows don't really give it nothing. You know, you by going and experiencing another culture, 
you all of a sudden learn tolerance and you learn that everybody's in the same boat, that everybody is just protect their family, be happy. You know, you also see that people don't need all the things you thought you needed in order to be happy. And we're caught up in, you know, if we, if we don't have time to do other things for other people, if we always think that we don't quite have enough because, you know, there's somebody who has more and we think, oh, you know, I would get rich, you know, Bill Gates, yeah, I built billions to give, you know, to help the world. And that's wonderful that those people do give back. But really, on a personal level, on a one-to-one -one level, we just, the, by, by having, especially when you're forming, I think the junior year would be an excellent year to be in a, you know, people want to be with their class their senior year, but maybe, a, you know, you go to another country, maybe you learn some language, it could be a, a language immersion course, but you get to experience the culture, see that people are living with much less and are more happy. You know, they actually have real happiness. It's not happy that, oh, I just made 10 grand. You know, it's happy that uh, the real things like at the, you know, your children's successes or, you know, just the life around you, uh, how it is that people have humor. You know, another thing about just as a side point about Congo was they're the worst, one of the worst lot of people as far as what they're what their resources are available, yet they never complain. There are people who don't complain. They don't, you can't even get them to complain. Like, you know, somebody didn't get a good night's sleep and you're going to, you know, how'd you sleep? Oh, good. You know, well, I don't think so. You look like you didn't. No, it was good. You know, they, they won't ever, that's just, if they complained, it would be overwhelming because of what they really have things to complain about. We don't. Our stuff is like, oh, you know, I'm late on a bill or I don't have enough money to pay a bill, this or that, you know, really. I think that if just uh, we're so sheltered from what's really, what humanity really is, that if everyone had, as a youth, got that experience of being in another country, you know, especially a third world country where you really see the nitty gritty of life and what other people are trying to do on this planet, you would have a totally different outlook on, I mean, that's the number one thing I've come up with that would change this country is for those people to experience real people trying to make ends meet. And then it would give them the perspective like I have every day on everything that I have that is more than I need. And I get that. I feel fortunate about the things I've had. I also feel guilty about them because I know that, you know, some of them are a little bit, uh, you know, uh, I try to use them for work and things like that, but say like, I just bought this camp trailer, you know, my old camp trailer had worn out that I paid 600 bucks for. I paid 13,000 for this more than I paid for the 20 acres that I raised my family on for a 23 foot, you know, camp trailer. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's the deal here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to see how people can go out in this society and, you know, you, you can always give back, help people be, be nice, be open-minded, but really to me, 
this a part of people that needs to be changed and we got to start with the youth and the youth need to experience uh, uh, the reality of the planet we live on because we are planetary citizens. We're not, you know, all this bullshit about American or Greek or, you know, whatever you are, that that's an applique, you know, uh, illusion that is put on everything. Geographically, this earth is one unit. And when you travel, you don't know the difference between borders. That's just something that man has made. And it has nothing to do with reality other than that it caused a hell of a lot of suffering. Uh, there's no reason why people shouldn't just look at all people on this earth as being brothers and sisters and in the same boat, you know, we, we really are. So that's my one, you know, little piece of wisdom that I would give is that, you know, and I would, you know, people wouldn't want to do it. That's why I would be kind of a little bit, you know, uh, you know, dictator, like to make it happen, but it would totally change the fabric of our nation to have that for people to have that experience. So to me, that's what I've always thought, you know, other than just find things, you know, there's ways to find things that all things you do for other people also benefit. So we can be narcissistic as we are in our society and still give back, you know, because you will start to find, you might not even know what the ways are it will give back. But just by reaching out and doing something, you'll find it. You know, you'll find how it improves you at character, if anything. You know. So totally, man. I uh, I couldn't have said that better myself. And I've uh, I was talking to a buddy AJ of mine a couple episodes ago, and I I felt the same way. I was like, I didn't know how because I haven't spent that much time thinking about it. But I feel that. We, we need to start with education because that's where you can impact youth as they're forming and their understanding of the world. I love, I love that idea. I think it's incredible for people to, they, they need to go to like humble university, right? which is going out into the world and seeing right. how other people live and how fortunate we are as a culture. And I think it puts a lot of things in perspective around are you going to spend 40 hours a week plus 10 hours a week commuting working for a company, which I totally get. There's some companies that do incredible things or yeah. are you going to go experience life and try to be, be a better person and help people out? And uh, I, that's a, that's a great way to wrap this up. I feel like, we may be pushing for Uncle Matt for president. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get maybe one thing done anyway. You know? <laughs> maybe that's no, what needs to happen. Yeah. Just focus yeah, on one right. thing. <laughs> right. Well, it's a complicated world, but, you know, we're not helping it. So that, that isn't help. You know, the, the, the way it's running is just going to get worse unless something radical happens. And, you know, oftentimes that's death and destruction. And it doesn't have to be that way. It can, it can, you know, it'd be nice for things to change without it just having to be completely blown out to make it work, you know, to make people start thinking different, just like in hurricanes and the different people come together more as community, they help each other out, stuff like that. It's always through these disasters that people do it, but not on, just not on their own, you know, free time with good, you know, and goodwill. So 
Yeah. You know, well, you know, I think there's, uh, but that perspective helps just to know that, you know, you don't need all this stuff to be happy. We, we can be happy just from good interactions with our fellow man, you know, and yeah. that's more meaningful than me. That's than beautiful. any new toy. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's uh, well, I, I truly appreciate your time. I know you're semi unplugged. That's a wrap ladies and gentlemen. Holy, that was, that was incredible. Uncle Matt blows my mind every time I talk to him. I'm super thankful that he was able to get access to the internet while he was in between traveling. Uh, he, the man has a lifetime worth of stories. So I hope you enjoyed everything about that. Check out Okanagan Trail Construction. I'm gonna post a link in YouTube to a video about the work that he was doing in the Congo and um, check check him out. He, I'm, I'm gonna get him to set up an Instagram and I'll post that in the description as well once he gets that set up. Peace out, everybody.